This is the politics of everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast. So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. Welcome to the politics of everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host. Today I'm chatting to Bernard Salt about the politics of demography. Bernard Salt is widely regarded as one of Australia's leading social commentators by the business, media and broader community. He founded KPMG Demographics, which developed into a high-profile specialised advisory business, and he writes two weekly columns for the Australian newspaper. He also is awarded an Order of Australia this year in the Australia Day Honours. Bernard's also a really in-demand speaker and perhaps is best known to the wider community for identifying and tagging new tribes and social behaviours such as sea change shift, man drought, goats cheese curtain, and also late last year was known for popularising smashed avocados. Welcome to the program, Bernard. Hi, Amber. Well, let's get stuck into it. Mm -hmm. Demographics is not something that sounds exactly exciting, but you seem to make it exciting. Why are we so excited to have a mirror on ourselves? Well, well, the term demographics, I think, really needs a makeover. It's, uh, it does sound like one of those topics that uh, would put you to sleep. But in actual fact, the subject is endlessly fascinating because the subject is ourselves. Everyone loves talking about themselves or at least comparing themselves with others or people they know or identifying the latest, most fashionable trends, tribes, observations, behaviours, for example. And I think that's why Smashed Avocado resonated so much. Uh, until it was crystallised, smashed avocado with crumbled feta uh, in a fashionable cafe, everyone goes, yes, yes, I know that. But it, you actually, it's making an observation of something that is there, that un, that is unsung, unrecognised, and then putting a theory around it. And the theory, which was done in jest, of course, uh, was that uh, this reflects a particular lifestyle that uh, may be having an impact on on housing. Uh, but since then, of course, uh, it it is uh, it is taken both Australia and and beyond uh, by storm. It's a it's a it's a observation of mine that just will not die. It no. keeps, keeps on going. Every time there's something to do with avocados or memes of avocados, they seem to involve you. So I they have do to indeed. say. Mm. Well, interestingly, talking about that, I saw uh, we recently had the federal budget come down and um, avocados actually rated a mention I saw in the ABC's coverage. In fact, Scott Morrison has revealed that it's bad news for millennials who enjoy avocado on their toast because there's a new levy on the fruit. So, I mean, those sorts of things are quite interesting. Well, they are quite interesting. Um, I haven't actually seen, I didn't actually see that at the time of the uh, of the budget. But um, yes, look, uh, there is uh, endless connection. When you actually Hit it, hit the nail on the head. There are endless connections. And this probably started for me maybe 12 or 13 years ago where I, I coined the term the sea change shift. 
in in reference to people moving to uh, coastal lifestyle areas. And then about six or seven years later, uh, I, I, I popularised the term man drought. And, of course, that went right around the world as well. Look, that's part of the fun of it. Um, How do you ca- come up with these things, well, well, I mean, for everyone that flies like that at an international level, there's probably another hundred that just, you know, come and go nowhere. Uh, but that's part of the fun, trying to identify uh, what it is that connects us as a people, uh, not just as a people, but at a particular time in history. I'm not sure that Smashed Avocado would have had the impact in, say, 2007 uh, that it does in uh, 2017, largely because the housing situation is different. So it's often the observation at a particular time in history and the broader context of where Australian society is at. Interesting. So how did you get into this area of expertise? Uh, Well, in fact, my training, um, when I left secondary school, I wanted to be a school teacher and did uh, teacher training. I'm a I'm a fully trained um, history and geography school teacher, but uh, never actually taught. I had some teaching rounds and uh, that experience in schools was enough to say, this is not for me. I went back to university and did a master's degree in urban growth and development and focused on Melbourne, Look, the evolution, the social geography of Melbourne as it evolved over 150 years or so. And I still draw on that experience, not just the technical skills of analysis and data assembly and so forth, but also the observations are relevant still today that Australian cities are really the product of 100 years of uh, social cultural evolution. From there, I fell into uh, consulting, doing feasibility studies for shopping centres, believe it or not, right around Australia. And from there, just started to talk about uh, the demographics of um, different projects, different um, different cities, and demand for speaking, for columns, uh, and media commentary, and just all went from there. So now you are known as a thought leader who can sort of speak freely on these trends and, and work across mm-hmm. various platforms. You even have your own television show on Sky. So as a baby boomer, you've seen a lot of changes mm-hmm. um, with demography. However, late last year when you did coin that whole avocado term, the smashed avocado trend, I mean, do you see something like that lasting or is it something like you say that 2007 we didn't care 2018, we're not going to care either. There'll be something else. I mean, how how quickly do these things shift? Well, in fact, uh, some of the some of the more important ones do actually stick around pretty much forever. In fact, people still talk about the sea change shift today. Um, it has entered the vernacular as shorthand for people retiring to the coast, if you like, as a as a theme uh, to explain modern behaviour. The same with man drought. Every Valentine's Day, I still feel calls from the media uh, talking about because it it actually speaks to a almost like a fear uh, that the numbers might not be right, uh, and there might be some statistical reason for uh, not not being able to find either a male or female partner. And then with smashed avocado, the issue of housing, I don't think that's ever going to go away. So these things can enter the vernacular and remain there uh, for decades, in fact. So it's my gift to the Australian people, smashed avocado. It's a gift that keeps on giving. That's right. So I guess um, obviously the 2016 Australian census had a few technical hitches, which we don't need to go into mm-hmm. here, but there was definitely some big shifts in Australian life since even five years ago. Any of these surprise you, and what were they? Well, in fact, the the, the census, uh, which was conducted last uh, August, is released in three tranches this year. We've already had one, 
that was in April. And uh, we're waiting for another one uh, later in in June. The main body Why of they data. Do it like that? What's, what's oh, I think there is. I think the reason is that there's so much to do that um, you know they drip feed it for whatever reason. That's fine. It gives me three chances at it rather than just one. Um, Something but, for demographers to look forward to everywhere. Uh, exactly. The, um, the the big shift that took place with that first insight into the 2016 census was the division between the east coast and west coast of Australia. That the West Coast is still largely an English Anglo-based society, whereas the East Coast is moving in a very different direction, principally uh, Melbourne and Sydney, which are more Asian, Indian and Arabic, uh, and with much stronger connectivity. If you look at airport connections of Melbourne and Sydney. These are global cities these days, and the demography is changing. The bedrock is still Anglo right across Australia, but what I say is the topsoil is evolving into Asian, Indian and Arabic communities. And I think if you walk around uh, Melbourne and Sydney, these are dynamic, exciting, engaged, connected, growing places of opportunity. Uh, Really, if you had a choice to live in any global city, English-speaking city, Melbourne and Sydney would be uh, right up there, I would think. You're a little bit biased, but that's okay. I'm a little bit biased. I mean, you know, uh, people would say London or New York. Uh, I have a problem with the weather in both London and New York. Well, there's some who I guess would love the weather. I've got friends. I lived in London for several years and people would go, oh, it's too hot in Australia. Yes, yes. No, uh, but I think I think Australians have uh, different expectations of lifestyle. We expect to be able to eat and work and, and move outside eight or nine months of the year. Whereas in London or New York, you know, it's contracted to maybe three or four months, I think. Mm, we're very lucky here. I guess the idea of, um, and this is what you have touched on with analysing the census, is the two Australias in one, if you like. So you've got those urban lifestyles mm. we talk about of Sydney and Melbourne and then the growing metropolises, places like Wollongong or Geelong or even you've touched on the Sunshine Coast in the future being somewhere that will have more con- connectivity to a global world. What does this mean in terms of creating more successful economies moving forward? I, I do think that Australia needs to evolve beyond Melbourne and Sydney and that as we move from 24 million people today to maybe 40 million by the middle of the century, Melbourne and Sydney will still dominate. There will be cities of 8 million or so by the middle of the century and possibly 10 million and more by the end of the century. But I think there is scope for uh, bigger uh, more bigger type cities, and certainly Brisbane, Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast, New- Newcastle, Wollongong, Geelong, all of those major regional cities will evolve. I think we'll see a densification of the Australian population right up and down the eastern seaboard uh, through places like Mackay and um, Townsville and Rockhampton and Cairns. Uh, we are very much still, though, a lifestyle coastal people, and apart from a number of key regional centres in the interior, this just does not seem to be... Now, we rely terribly uh, on agribusiness, but it's all mechanised these days. You don't actually need the labour out in the wheat belt to deliver the harvest these days. We'd much rather be by the beach, uh, in fact, uh, or in a major capital city. So I guess what you know, what do governments need to do? What, what are, I guess we need to do structurally to make these cities actually much more connected? So I think of somewhere like a Newcastle, and I've spent a lot of time up mm. there, it's still ages to get there. We don't have a fast train. We don't have the things that we need to really attract people to perhaps in the professional capacity want to move there. Well, in, in, if you go to any of these cities like Newcastle, Wollongong, Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, whatever, uh, they will all talk about very fast trains and train connectivity. And to a certain extent, that's true. But I don't like to think of it 
in that respect at all. It's a, that is like saying we're going to grow because we can actually be strongly connected to a bigger engine. If I was in those cities, I'd think, I have the bigger engine. I want to be my own city, my own self. We need to create strong, vital, vibrant, self-contained cities so that the Sunshine Coast is a very proud and independent city, that Geelong is a proud and independent city with a greater range and depth of jobs. And look, if you want to commute to Melbourne or to commute to to Brisbane, then that's fine. But everything you need, there's a university, there's hospitals, there's schools, there's lifestyles, there's affordable housing as well as aspirational housing. There's even a hipster strip here or there. You can get your smashed avocados. You're not out in the boondock somewhere. So it's almost like boutique, sophisticated cities, lifestyle cities that could in time be a perfect foil for the bigger, the meaner, the more unaffordable Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane get, then there is a natural market for people to say, you know what, I'm sick of this. I want the safety, the security, the lifestyle, the integrity, if you like, of these uh, more boutique-scaled cities. Interesting. I guess technology allows us to be more connected no matter where we are too. So, Well, I think this is very important with the, uh, with the rollout of the NBN. If you look at Australian values, we have used, uh, we're driven by lifestyle. We've used trams, trains and automobiles to actually uh, colonise suburbia because we thought a separate house and a separate block of land was a better way of living than in a cramped terrace house. We then pursued sea change and tree change, largely because we thought, you beauty, we want lifestyle. What is the ultimate lifestyle that you could live on the Australian continent? Well, it wouldn't be living in suburbia. It wouldn't necessarily be living in a coastal town within striking distance of a capital city. It might be living in the Daintree. It might be living in the southwest cape of Western Australia. It might be living anywhere on the Australian continent. But if you can actually pursue work options via the internet, via the NBN, for example, well, then you could actually have the great e-change movement of the 2020s and 2030s, where the Australian people in hot pursuit of lifestyle actually let go of or break the connection with the capital city and truly inhabit and settle the regions and the margins of, uh, of the Australian continent. And do you think this experience is unique to Australia or is it, do you think it's something other global cities might be looking at as well? Like if you lived in New York and you can't stand anymore living in your tiny, you know, brownhouse or your department or whatever and, you're, you know, commuting an hour a day anyway within a city, I mean, is that happening elsewhere or is it unique? No, I would actually see this happening elsewhere and, and America is a good example. If you look at uh, the migration flows in America, that's very strong sunbelt drift everywhere from Phoenix through to Florida uh, particularly most of the Texas uh, cities uh, Americans have moved to over the course of the last generation. So I think the logic of what I'm saying that applies to the Australian continent would also apply to other places as well. So uh, you could, in fact, find that uh, New York, by the middle of the century, is not so much inhabited by people that have to live there. I mean, there's a lot of New Yorkers, as there are Sydney-siders, think, you know, I don't like living in the city, but this is where my work is and uh, it's just too hard. Uh, Whereas by the middle of the century, you might find, well, these cities are actually inhabited by people that want to be there and the regions and the lifestyle areas are inhabited by people that want to live there, that now can live there. Ultimately, it could lead to a more satisfied community. You You don't get people being 
um, stressed out or angry because they're caught in traffic. You're in the city because you actually want to be there rather than you actually have to be there. Very interesting. Well, there's lots to, lots to look forward to, it sounds like. It sounds like a great lifestyle mm. shift in many ways. So I guess understanding these sort of trends and economic realities is your, is your, is your living, if you like. But, I mean, what, how does this really impact everyday people? I mean, it all sounds good. <laughs> it's really exciting. Well, but, I mean, do people, how do people actually take this on board? But, but I do think that uh, there's certainly an interest. It's a, like, gee whiz, isn't that interesting or engaging or funny or amusing or insulting or whatever it is. Um, so there's that element. But I think it also helps in uh, helps people to plan their own lives. If you actually, you know, if I'm talking about uh, the way in which uh, the workforce will change, so you need more skills. If you're a parent, you really need to make sure that your kids come out of secondary school uh, either being able to go into university or with some sort of technical training. So talk about uh, a social shift in the workforce as a practical uh, application like that. And even if I was to talk about lifestyle shifts across the Australian continent, it triggers people's minds. Yes, actually, that is that is good. You know, I'm stuck out in the suburbs of Western Sydney. Uh, if I did get the chance to telecommute, I would, in fact, move to the Daintree and telecommute. I think it actually triggers or legitimises thought patterns in people that would not have otherwise been there. I see myself as a... Um, as a scout, as a trigger, if you like, yeah. uh, enabling people to think boldly and differently about their own lives. And how, is, how do you do this research? I mean, without I going into all the detail, I mean, um, obviously you've got a team of people who assist you, but yeah. what, I mean, how do you just know where, where to go, how to look, what you uh, well, to? And- well, I suppose it, it all starts with the, uh, with the numbers, where people are moving and uh, how they're evolving, and the census, of course, is a great um, insight. But it's more than that. You need to actually connect the numbers with Australian society and behaviour. And I will often be... Um, out with friends or something or at a fashionable cafe and I'll look at the menu and think, oh, and, and something will click, something in my head and um, uh, all of a sudden I think, oh, yes, uh, that uh, that menu item with that social behaviour, with these numbers, there's a story. They're all linked. And that's the thing. I think it's the story we love. The narrative. Yeah, the yeah. narrative that you put on and it then, and it then could be, just be very dry otherwise. And, and then actually put, you need to, because I'm writing two columns a week, I'm always searching. So if I was thinking, if I didn't have that, I suppose it is pressure in some respects to come up with thinking, I'm always looking for ideas. And there is a great outlet. I mean, my Thursday column in The Australian has been terrific proving grounds. That's a thousand published words uh, every week for 14 years or so. And then people will email in saying that was silly, that was stupid, or that was terrific. And they will build upon it. And you actually collaborate with the readership and you do that well enough and often enough, and then you, you put these ideas out there, and then it goes into radio, then it goes into television, and then it comes back into the newspaper, and it all meshes and uh, builds into an interpretation of modern society. And so what do you think matters most to modern Australians? I mean, we talked about affordable <laughs> housing, of course, the smashed avocado analogy mm. painted that picture. Is it about more leisure time? Is it about faster Wi-Fi? I mean, what do you think that sort of the middle class is looking for in Australia? I, I think that Australians generally, um, middle class, any other class, uh, are driven by lifestyle. 
and it's how we interpret lifestyle. There was a time where lifestyle was really well encapsulated as a separate house on a separate block of land out in the suburbs with a side drive and a car, employ- full employment and kids at a local school. Uh, this was the this was the ideal of Australian lifestyle, maybe in the 1950s, maybe through to the 1970s and 80s. Since then, we have had a greater articulation variation in Australian lifestyle. Yes, there's a three-bedroom brick veneer with mum and dad out in the burbs, but mums were likely to work. Instead of four kids, there'd be um, uh, two kids. Um, and um, they might not work in the city, they might work locally, or they might work from home, in fact. And then, of course, you have the rise of uh, the inner city lifestyle inside the goat's cheese curtain, which is really the Manhattan lifestyle. So you can do the Manhattan thing, you can do the suburban thing, and or you could go right to the edge of town and um, and live the McMansion lifestyle, which I see is very Texan. So you've got Paris in the centre of town, you've got Texas on the edge of town, you've got Australia in the middle of uh, Australian cities. To me, this is, this is a, a nuanced society that is interpreting lifestyle very differently according to different values. And all these trends and tribes um, are pushed together in, in the city at the moment. It's all fascinating, of totally course. Totally fascinating. I guess um, I've heard you say before that in terms of things like mentors and inspirational mm. figures, I mean, you're, one of your views I've, I've read, and you can mm. argue with me if it's not true, is that you, having mentors from different generations is not necessarily that helpful when you're in a career situation. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm often contacted by younger people saying they want to do what I do and will I mentor them? And my advice is, well, look, I'm, you know, I'm happy to have a chat, usually have a telephone chat, uh, but I'm not really that keen on... I, I get the sense from that generation that uh, if they perceive you as being successful, then if they talk to you, then you will have um, um, messages of success. And a gold dust. Like go, yeah, that's right. It's like, you know, don't... You've got to carve your own way. Because when I look back to, say, the 1980s and the 1990s when I was making my way, I was actually told by people I would consider to be mentors to actually not do what I was doing, to actually conform, to, you know, don't do the demographics thing. And my advice, therefore, is you actually need to carve your own path. You need to have self-confidence. If you if you are too respectful for the view of a mentor, you won't maybe find the pathway that is the right pathway for you. If I had have listened to sage advice in the 1990s, then I wouldn't have broken through. Um, so yes, have a chat with these people, but don't necessarily don't accept everything they say as prescription. I think time and place is important too. Yeah. What what worked maybe twenty years ago wouldn't necessarily work exactly. now anyway. And I think society is different. I think uh, people are far more liberal, far more open to uh, different ideas. I suppose there was quite a prescribed career pathway twenty five years ago, and I think that's far more fluid today. But I feel very uncomfortable saying, "Well, I say, look, you know, this worked for me." But at the end of the day, you have to decide what you're passionate about and you have to navigate your way there. And if you're not inclined to do that, it's all too hard. Well, that's fine. You need to sort of wander off and do something else. The truly passionate and the truly determined uh, will actually find a pathway eventually. That's very interesting advice with great perspective on it. To close off, I'd love to just hear a bit of your final manifesto for 
listeners who might be thinking, well, the politics of demography, so what? Mm-hmm. I mean, why is it exciting? What's next? Where do you, where do you see yourself and, I guess, what you do heading? <laughs> um, well, the politics of demography is endlessly fascinating, again, because as we open with, this is all about uh, ourselves. I think there are a number of issues going into the future that uh, Australian society will have to deal with, the ageing of the population, of course. I think a greater diversity of ethnicity. I think we might have to be dealing with issues of um, challenges to social cohesion uh, going forward, changes in the workplace, uh, of course. And I certainly intend to be around for a long, long time yet. I love my column in the Australians, in the columns in the Australian. It gives me a platform to talk about Australia in a very patriotic and supportive and And you are very way. passionate on the topics that you share. I, I I it comes through, even, yeah. even in the written sense. Yes, I, I've often been told by people in my audiences, oh, Bernard, you're very passionate. And I thought, oh, am I? Um, that's that's just me, I suppose. But um, so I intend uh, certainly remaining um, a writer for the Australian for some time. I certainly like presenting. There's a bit of theatre to it, um, and when you are confident about your material, then it's not hard at all. There are some some presentations that can be a little, you know, more stressful than others. Um, you know, and I might try and slow down a little bit uh, in the future, but I'm of the view that you know, if you like it, you you know, if people want you to do it, you enjoy it. Um, why why would you not continue to do it? And that's certainly my plan for the future. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Politics of Everything. Thank you, Bernard. My pleasure. Thanks, Amber. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed the Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespoke comms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.